Our mission is to transform journalism, not just in the United States, but around the globe, by tilting the balance away from coverage of what's wrong to include coverage of how people are trying to solve problems. What those responses are and what the evidence says about whether they're working or not. I'm J.B. Wogan from Mathematica, and welcome back to On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. For this episode, I'll be talking with Tina Rosenberg about the role of evidence in solutions journalism. This interview originally aired as a live event on LinkedIn. About a decade ago, Tina co-founded the Solutions Journalism Network, an independent nonprofit that advocates for an evidence-based mode of reporting on responses to social problems. Of particular interest to this podcast audience, the Solutions Journalism Network challenges journalists to look for data or qualitative results that show whether a solution they're covering is actually effective. Our conversation explored what solutions journalism is and how organizations that generate evidence of effectiveness can contribute to reporting about solutions. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I was hoping that we could start with a little background information. Our listeners might have a rough guess of what we mean by solutions journalism, but your organization has a somewhat specific definition. So what is solutions journalism and what is the mission of the Solutions Journalism Network? Mm -hmm. So um, our mission is to transform journalism, not just in the United States, but around the globe, by tilting the balance away from coverage of what's wrong to include coverage of how people are trying to solve problems. What those responses are and what the evidence says about whether they're working or not. So we are an organization, as you said, started about 10 years ago, nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit. We work with journalists and freelancers around the world to help them do this kind of journalism, reporting on what works or how people are trying to make something work. So they can do that with a sense of professional safety and not fall into advocacy or cheerleading or public relations or fluff. So how did you become interested in covering uh, solutions as a journalist and where has that manifested in the work that you do outside of this organization? Well, I mean, first of all, we didn't invent solutions journalism. An awful lot of people practice it without putting a name on it. Without, And if you said, are you a solutions journalist? They would say, what's that? But they do it. For example, Michael Lewis. Um, most of his books, like The Big Short, Moneyball, are about people who have succeeded in doing something, winning in baseball with a low salary, um, salary with, 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 with not much income, um, that others have not, and the books are about how they do it. So that is classic solutions journalism. For myself, it came out of a story that I wanted to do um, back in the year 2000. I had been living in Latin America for a long time and working also for the Sunday Magazine of the New York Times. And I pitched my editor on a story about the price of AIDS medicines in countries that were resource poor, 
And the, the issue was is that these medicines, which had been available for about five years, AIDS treatments, tri uh, triple therapy, were so expensive, $20,000 a year, $15,000 a year, that no one, almost no one in poor countries could afford these drugs. So the countries with the highest burden of HIV AIDS could not use them. That was widely known at the time, but what was not widely known was why. And the reason was collusion between the pharmaceutical industry and the government of Turn in Washington. At the time, it was Bill Clinton, but didn't really matter. And they were putting political pressure on countries not to make or buy generic versions of these drugs. So I pitched that to my editor. I thought this is a really important investigative piece. And he said, no. He said, it's too depressing and it's not fresh. We can't, mm. we can't inflict another 7,000 word story on our audience about uh, everybody with HIV in Malawi is gonna die. So I went home and I rethought it and I turned it inside out. And this is the solutions part. <clears throat> there was one country that was in fact defying this pressure, making its own generic versions of um, antiretrovirals and providing them for free to all its citizens who, who needed these drugs. <clears throat> and that was Brazil. So the piece became, what is Brazil doing? And what um, what are they achieving by it? And in the course of telling that story, I could say everything I wanted to say about the bad behavior that was occurring. It was all—it was a way to talk about the investigative part, but through a different lens. So um, that had several advantages. First of all, got into the paper. Can't, not, you're not doing anything if you don't get that. Second of all, it was fresh. People did know that folks with HIV in Malawi were going to die. They did not know that those people in Brazil were going to live normal lifespans. And it had some impact. Um, the world was just starting to talk about antiretrovirals and how, whether they could be used in resource poor countries. And Brazil showed that it was possible. So it pushed the debate a little from whether poor countries could use these drugs to how can poor countries do what Brazil is already doing. So since that time, every time I wrote a piece about something that my editor would say, oh, that's too depressing, which is all the time. Um, <laughs> I asked myself, is there a way to turn this inside out and talk about it through someone trying to respond to that problem? And, and, and that was solutions journalism for me. Interesting. And that was, you had been a journalist for more than a decade at that point. So this was a, ah, this was like epiphany, three decades, right? Maybe four decades, a long time. Okay. But I always wrote about, you know, torture and public health disasters and dictatorship. And, you know, I, I don't think I ever wrote a story that had included a solution before and, and or even gave a sense that the problems I was covering were being solved in some parts of the world. And, and that was wrong because it was giving a distorted picture of the world. Um, there is one other thing about from a definition, definitional standpoint that I wanted to cover, which is when we're talking about solutions journalism, um, I want to make sure to cover one point about what it is not. I know that this comes up in some of the materials, the free educational materials the organization offers online, but what makes solutions journalism different from advocacy or PR? Okay, good question. And we, a question we get a lot from journalists. It doesn't celebrate or, or, or choose responses. It covers them. So it looks at different things that people are doing, what works about them and what doesn't work about them. 
And it could be a story about response A today and response B tomorrow and response C. And it's not saying we should do this. It's saying, let's look at a place that has done this and how well it's gone. It's just reporting. Okay. Okay. Excellent. And I think evidence is probably part of part of uh, the yeah, the way that you distinguish too. So I do have one more definitional question, but I think this will segue nicely into some of the data-driven work that our listeners do. Could you explain the concept of positive deviance and what it means in the context of solutions journalism? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It's my favorite concept. So there's two ways to do a solutions journalism story, to find a story, which is a challenge for a lot of people. Well, how do I know that you know, this is something worth covering. One way is because you hear about a group doing something really cool, like an NGO that has managed to um, make sure that schools have washing machines so that kids who don't want to come to school because their clothes are dirty and they don't have washing facilities at home have a place to do that at school. That's a really cool solutions journalism story. But it's a small one usually, and it's one that often doesn't have much evidence to it. The other way of doing it, of finding a solution story, is to take the problem and cut it into small pieces, each of those pieces being an important key bottleneck. You know, we're not solving this because, you know, um, uh, because there's every, every problem can be cut into in, an infinite number of subproblems. Then you use data to see who is doing better on that particular problem. Um, for example, you get a database of New York State hospitals and their C-section rates. And the usual tendency of a journalist is to look for the worst performer and then pounce, you know, let's, let's expose this hospital, which is doing bad things. You should also look for the best performer and see what it is they're doing that is working and why. Um, and, you know, if it's a database you trust, then it's no more risky to write about the best performer than it is to write about the worst performer. Um, and there's many, many, many ways to do this. You know, why have Poland's smoking rates dropped so precipitously compared to other countries? Why is it that, that exercise rates went up so much in Kentucky, much more than anywhere else? Um, you know, why is it that uh, uh, this, this county has very, has very low rates of childhood asthma? Almost every problem could be attacked this way through data and by looking at who's doing a better job. What's a hospital with the, with the best rates of uh, C. diff infection? What's a school that has almost eliminated the gap between black and white economic achievement? And, and one of the reasons that these are really great stories is that they're almost by definition meaty. They're, they're, they're five ounce they're not five-ounce solutions to five-ton problems. They're five-ton solutions to five-ton problems because if you can find them in the data as a place that's done better, that means it's feasible and it makes a difference. The data shows you that it has made a difference. So I love these kinds of positive deviant stories. Um, I, it, it reminds me, I remember going to a, a, a training a while back. I don't know if it's still called this, but computer-assisted reporting more than more than a decade ago. And Why call were, that that anymore? Yeah. Is there anything that isn't? But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but it used to be, I think that was when I was first starting out, a um, sort of felt like the cutting edge where you were 
put, pulling data into an Excel sheet and then playing with it to find the the median and the mean and, and you would look for the but you they did teach you how to look for the outliers, but it was usually in the context of yeah, what was the the most what was the worst performer or the the most you know Yeah. In part because that computer existed computer assisted reporting classes taught by IRE, which is the investigative reporting and editors network. And and investigative reporting, which is defined as information people don't want you to know, is always focused on the problem. I mean, we contend that writing a solutions angle to an investigative story is really great because it can take away the excuses of people who are doing badly, like the Brazil story did. You know, if you know it's possible, then why the hell aren't we doing it? Um, Mm -hmm. So it, it actually is a good combination. But investigative reporting is generally focused on on exposing problems and not much else. Right. Yeah. But I, I think it's interesting this the turn of of it being you can apply some of those same skills and sensibilities uh, towards towards solutions and still be make it rigorous. So for a lot of our listeners, I think that third pillar in the definition of solutions journalism about including evidence of effectiveness is going to be music to their ears. To It's definitely music to my ears. Um, not only because it's a part of the definition, but it represents such a big piece of the model. Could you share a bit about how it came to be one of the four pillars and why it was important to elevate evidence of effectiveness in this way? Sure. Well, let me just mention what the four pillars are, because I'm not sure that, that we've done that. First of all, it's a story about a response um, to a problem. It does not exclusively necessarily, but this response is part of the story. Second of all, it looks for insights, not just inspiration. It's about a systemic response, and we can learn from something from that story that others can use to help move that program elsewhere or replicate it. Third of all, evidence. I'll come back to that. And fourth, limitations. You have to cover what's not working about it. Otherwise, it's public relations. So evidence is used in a in a in a more expansive and probably thinner way than you use it as a you know as somebody who looks at academic research and that is that you have to tell people in your story what we know and what we don't know and that evidence doesn't have to be quantitative it can be this it's the same standard of evidence you would use for any story it can just be a lot of people you talk to who said X and Y and Z. It could be an expert who says this. It could be people served by the response who say, well, you know, this part is good, but this part needs some help. Um, So it it does not have to be 30 years of randomized control trials. In fact, if it is, then almost, then by definition, what you're writing about isn't news. So, um, so that's, that's always a problem, that trade-off there. But if let's say there is no good data, there's no data of, that shows anything. Uh, let me give you an example of a story, which we like to use in training. It's a story from um, uh, Barrow, Alaska, which is above the Arctic Circle. And it's a, it's a place where there is a very high level of, um, of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And the judge there, who got the uh, nickname Minimum Mike, designed his courtroom to be friendly to defendants with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And also there's a probation officer who's learned these techniques and um, the DA has learned these techniques of how to make people feel comfortable, how to um, 
how to make the court understandable to them, how to make it feel fair to them, how to make them feel part of it. So that's a fascinating story. There is absolutely no evidence that it works. There's no evidence that it doesn't either, but they've just never had any money to study it. So does that mean we shouldn't write about it? I would say no. You do write about it, but you say, as the reporter said in the story, we don't know if this works. But it's a good story. So you can write about it, and it's a solution story. Yeah. Um, so the the network supports journalists who cover responses to social problems, but as a communications professional looking to share this the story of solutions with with new evidence of effectiveness, I found that some of its advice is applicable to my work as well. I'm I'm hoping other people on on um, uh, during this live recording are are seeing that as well. For example, Mathematica sometimes produces reports about a specific initiative or demonstration project that's in one place. And when it comes to write the press release, we debate you know, how uh, to make the research as relevant as possible to as broad an audience as possible. So what advice do you give journalists when they're writing about a solution that was implemented, implemented in one context or in one community but really could be of interest or should be of interest to people outside of that original context or community. Yeah. Um, can you give me an example, JB, of a kind of intervention you're talking about? So let's see, what's a, a recent one? Um, so for example, uh, early on in my time here, there was a study about the soda tax in Philadelphia um, and there are some very unique elements to the design of the soda tax in Philadelphia. Um, but there are uh, lots of places that are interested in the in reducing childhood obesity or reducing consumption of sugary beverages. But the the I think at the time it was maybe the only city that had taxed sugary and and uh, artificially sweetened drinks, for example. So, when we got it came time to report on the results from that study, you know, how do we um, make sure that we're not sort of, uh, I guess, just making sure that we're not um, claiming that the the findings are relevant to communities outside of Philadelphia, or that 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 the solution is relevant if you don't have the same, either don't have a soda tax or don't have the the same kind of soda tax? That may not be the perfect example, but that's the first one that comes to mind. So I, my advice to journalists would be turn that into an investigative story about what your city is not doing that it should be doing. Um, and it could be, you know, maybe a soda tax here. Maybe there's a new law that is, a, you know, look, looking at, um, you know, how streets are designed in order to reduce pedestrian deaths that's been successful. Anything you want Take that evidence and say, let's look at what our city is doing. And if, in fact, that's the city is not doing that and is getting poor results, then write a story about that. Investigate what your city is doing wrong. And as part of that story, include this example that, hey, over here in Milwaukee, they've done this. So why aren't we doing this in Madison? That is the kind of story that appeals to journalists because it's investigative. Um, only you use that solutions part to um, take away excuses. So I have another question that I think 
is an example of overlap between solutions journalists and research organizations in terms of navigating a storytelling challenge. Sometimes a study publishes and the top line finding is solution X doesn't work or did not work as intended. Um, is that automatically not news or is there a productive and newsworthy way to frame evidence that shows the solution did not work? Productive in what sense? Like, can, can it still be useful to- To a journalist or to the public? To the public, I think. Yeah, to the public. I think it is useful to the public no matter what because, you know, failure is good to learn from as well as success. So, um, but for journalists, which is what I can really talk about, a failed solution is still a solution story. Journalists tend to write those only when there's some organic reason to do that. For example, that thing is coming to your city. So if you work for the Detroit Free Press and Ford is about to adopt a quality control method that Boeing has been using, then you can go to Seattle or wherever the hell Boeing is now. I don't even know where um, Mexico probably, but um, um, and you can write a piece about how well that's worked for Boeing. And it's an interesting and relevant solution story for the Detroit Free Press, whether it's completely successful, a total failure, or anywhere in between. So yes, failure is of interest to journalists if there's a particular reason that's relevant to my community. If not, they probably will not report much on that story. The the um, in, my, in my previous role, as I uh, used to be a staff writer at Governing Magazine, when we Sometimes we would write on the front end when uh, a community would um, launch something innovative where there wasn't really any data or evidence yet, and but it, you know it was a promising solution to a widespread problem. And the thing that uh, I would always try to do is is make a note to myself a couple of years later to go back and see well now what's happened because we were really good about covering the launch of an initiative, but especially if there wasn't evidence that it was effective. We wouldn't necessarily get that call back from the you know city X to hey come back and write about what's happening now. Um, I think that's that. This seems like a really important part of the continuum of reporting on solutions. You're totally right. It is really important a just to follow up, um, which journalists are very bad at doing. But also, it's that journalists tend to think, oh, I've written about a bill being passed to establish a program or money being appropriated for a program, and that's it, solved. I, we all know that that is totally not true. And it, you actually can't even do a solution story until there is something going on on the ground to report on. If it's just theoretical or just future or just a bill passed or something, you can't do a solution story because you can't look at it and say, Looks like this part worked, that part didn't work. So it's really important to um, to wait until there's a program that you can cover, and to acknowledge that it's early days, and, and we will come back, and then to, and then come back. What about partial solutions? Uh, I think this comes up in some of the the, the trainings I, uh, I I took the basic toolkit that you all uh, offer, and um, if if a program reduces Say, this is just a hypothetical, but let's say a program reduces chronic homelessness by 5%, but the community's original goal was to end homelessness. Is that, is that still a story? And what's, what's the organization's philosophy 
on the value of partial solutions. Yeah, well, everything's a partial solution. I mean, there is no such thing as a complete solution to anything, anywhere. So that's always a problem you get. But it's probably also the case that the journalists don't care how you define success. Um, they care how they would define success. And 5% reduction, I don't know. If everybody else is getting worse with homelessness, then a 5% reduction might be worth reporting on. Um, there was a study recently published on a program called Ready Chicago that the University of Chicago's NORC lab did. And the goals for the program had been to reduce shootings, reduce recidivism and all sorts of crime and, and, and uh, uh, something else, property crime. And it had a tremendous effect on reducing shootings, but didn't do so well at the other goals. And so the, the, the headline was program fails. I would disagree with that. I would say that, you know, if you found something that seriously reduces shootings, that's that's a, that's success. That's worth reporting on. Um, whether, you know, even if it didn't meet the goals you set out, which I know is one of the principles of academic research, you can't move the goalposts once you've started. But journalists don't have to follow those same goalposts. So a lot of our listeners produce the kinds of evidence that might end up in a story about solutions. Um if they aren't already, I imagine they're going to be excited about this movement that centers data and other evidence about responses to social problems. So how can our listeners help support solutions journalism and make it more of the norm? What role can they play? That's a great question, and we've been struggling with that. We know that this is something that non-journalists want. In fact, non-journalists understand and appreciate this concept much more easily than journalists do. Um, non-journalists, of course you're going to report on what's working. Journalists are like, that's not news. Um, and, and so it's absolutely the case that, that audiences and communities want this. The problem is it's hard to find a feedback mechanism to let journalists know that that's the case. And, and, and one way of doing it is just looking at the metrics of your digital, because you obviously can't know with print, but with digital news product, are people clicking on these stories? Um, are people, that's less important, because we all know what people like to click on. Um, are people spending time with these stories? Do they go, do they read them for longer? Are these the kinds of stories that lead you to sign up for a newsletter or to uh, subscribe to a publication? And the answer to those latter two um, things about time on page and um, and uh, and signing up to be a paying customer in some way is yes, solutions mm -hmm. journalism does do that. And that is pretty key to what journalists need to understand the value of this. Look, journalists know that our numbers in terms of news engagement have been dropping. People are really tired of the news. The CDC even issued a bulletin saying, for your own mental health, stop reading the news during COVID or give yourselves breaks because it's painful. I mean, we produce a product that's painful to consume and then we wonder why no one will pay for it. Um, and, and so journalists understand the value of, of producing the kinds of, of reporting that communities want, but is still serious reporting that isn't, isn't fluff and, and PR. But the, imperatives of the everyday way the newsroom is run make it very hard to change. And we 
when we started, we thought attitude change would be a very difficult problem, and it hasn't been. But but behavior change has been. And and the reason is is that you walk out of the workshop saying, "Oh, I'm really psyched about this. I want to do this story, and I'm going to do this, this, and this." But today I have three other pieces I have to finish. So I'll think about it tomorrow. And guess what? Tomorrow never comes. Um, and, and so it's very hard to change a newsroom's routine. Um, so we need evidence that people want it. And so, you know, if you read pieces that, are, that you find useful and, and high value, which is what we think newsrooms should be doing, we think any newsroom that's going to survive is going to survive because they offer something to their community that other others don't offer. Um, so if you read something or, or listen or watch something that's very high value, subscribe to a newsletter, subscribe to the publication, um, you know, tweet it out, uh, share it on social, um, you know, make do something that that has some feedback to the newsroom itself in terms of of wanting this kind of journalism. What one question that we've gotten um, is about the story tracker. Could you speak a little bit? Because that seems like another part part of this. Maybe that's another way that people could could contribute. W- what is the story tracker that the network runs and and uh, how can people participate in that or support it? Yeah, that's that's a great point. The story tracker is something that's accessible through our website. It's got a button for that. And it's basically a database of solution stories. Um, and we have a group of people, human beings, for the moment, who collect solution stories and vet them, make sure that they're good, they fill the four pillars of solutions journalism, they summarize them, they tag them for search, and they link to them. So the IP is not held on our website with the database, it's just linked to. And we have, I think, about 15,000 stories in there right now. There's a lot. So anything you're interested in, you can go and look at it and search for that. If you're interested in homelessness solutions, that um, that are in Texas and um, you know and have um, that are by certain news organizations or are broadcast in more than 15 minutes long or you know use certain strategies. We even tag by what kind of strategy was used, which is hard to do. Hmm. This this story tracker is very very useful for policymakers for all sorts of people. Um, And it's not really a way to provide feedback, though, to journalists, because um, the amount a story is going to get read because it's on the story tracker is not, it's pretty negligible um, from overall. I mean, you know, if it gets, you know, five people click on it in a week, the newsroom is not going to notice that. Um, we have another question that's come in. Th- thanks so much uh, to Dave here. He asks, what qualities make for the best research partners from a solutions journalism perspective? Mm. Um, I would say that a journalist will get, a serious journalist at a decent publication may get 50 press releases a day. And, and some of them, I mean, the vast majority won't even be clicked on the email. So the quality that makes it good is to have it in the subject line of the email. Um, you know, homelessness drops by 15% or, um, you know, uh, low-income students' test scores double. Some shorthand that shows you something important went on here and the numbers can prove it. Then I'm going to click on that and I'm going and, and to read all about it. 
And um, you don't have to give me individual stories of people. I'll find those. Or sometimes I'll ask you for help in finding them. But I want to know that this is something worth reporting on. Journalists are so strapped for time that we don't want to spend our time on something that may not pan out. Okay. We have That's another really more question. more of a marketing issue than a, than a um, research issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I understand that. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to be able to make sure it's worth the journalist's while and um, clarify what the takeaway is at the top. And of course the, the research itself should be rigorous, right? There needs yes. to be some sense of credibility at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have another question here um, from Michael who asks, what effect does a lacking understanding of data have within a newsroom? For example, can data can be massive and to distill meaningful insights down can be a challenge unto itself. So could a lack of understanding be another factor here? Could it allow for jumping to conclusions? Michael, you are so totally right. And a lack of understanding is even more lethal because it means I'm not even going to look at that database because I know there's nothing I can do to make myself understand it. There's enough literacy in data so people get some of the basics. Like you can't say, for example, oh, you know, people in in Westchester County, which is a ritzy suburb of New York, had better test scores than people in the Bronx. Let's investigate why. Well, a, a journalist is going to know. Well, no, we know the reason for that. You know, Bronx is the poorest urban county in America. Westchester is one of the richest counties in America. That we understand what those kinds of confounders are. But um, but that beyond that, we're, we're pretty we're pretty hopeless, most of us. And some of the some newsrooms have the luxury of having a data person, but it is pretty rare. It's pretty rare. And and journalists are just really intimidated by data. Um, and, and won't even go there because um, we're afraid of jumping to conclusions. We don't want to be wrong. So we just don't, we just don't do it. I'm curious for any of our listeners, if you, if you wouldn't mind putting in the chat, any uh, recent examples you can think of, of solutions, stories that have stuck with you. Um, I, I, I think I did. Did I see that the New Yorker has, Maybe I'm going to get this wrong. I thought the, the whole issue on climate solutions on climate solutions. Yes, and I feel like that's a trend that I've seen more solution stories in general and more climate sort of in particular. I think there's this growing realization that climate is reporting itself. Climate change is reporting itself. Um, you know, we need to report on what what's happening because if we keep just saying we're doomed, we're doomed, we're doomed, you know, you drive people into into fatalism and inaction. And, and that's just as bad as denialism. So, you know, we need to be talking about serious solutions, not like I changed my sunscreen, but serious policy solutions that are, that, or business solutions that are big and work. Let's see. So what advice do you offer? I, I guess this is, you know, this is a question specifically about journalists, but I'm curious, what advice do you offer journalists as they assess evidence, especially if the evidence is mixed and experts disagree on how to interpret the evidence. So, I mean, journalists aren't necessarily going to be methodological experts, for example. So I'm curious, like, how 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 are they supposed to um, navigate those waters and interpret, um, interpret evidence? Well, a bad journalist will cherry pick the, the part that they want to, um, which we see plenty of. A good journalist probably not write about it because they 
are afraid to get it wrong. But if but one of the advantages of a solutions approach is that it admits for nuance. Um, you know, we, we're not looking for perfect programs. Nobody expects a program to be perfect. And, and we are open to the idea that parts of something work and parts of something don't work. And, and the question isn't, does something work? It's what about it works and what doesn't work? And so I think there's a little bit more room there for journalists to look at mixed results and, um, and write a, a story about those. But an editor would often come in and say, you know, if there's no strong conclusion here, why take up our reader's time with this and your time as a reporter? Very often that'll um, So uh, I'm getting another question here. Um, this is a, about um, social media. It, you, you talked about page views and kind of the, the, the performance, you know, data that shows that solutions, uh, solution stories seem to be more successful on the website. But what about in terms of social media up, uh, uptake? Is there any indication that people respond more on social media sites as well? Oh, yeah. Um, people love to share this stuff. It's, it, you know, makes you feel cool and, and it's exciting and it's something different. Um, for example, the, uh, the New York Times has a section called Headway, which is solutions journalism about big issues. And Michael Kimmelman wrote this piece about how Houston has reduced homelessness by a considerable amount. Very long piece, very in-depth piece. Um, it was the single most Instagrammed piece in the history of the New York Times. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, a problem-focused piece about homelessness would not have come anywhere near there. The column that my co-founder at SJN, David Bornstein, Solutions Journalism Network, and I used to write at the New York Times called Fixes, we very often had stories in the most shared category, even when there were things like about putting in toilets in, in, in villages in India. That's not a story that would normally get on the most email list, but but it did. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll follow up afterwards with some links. I... I, um, I uh, I really enjoyed, there was this, a story that you did in the fixes about um, how to increase, I think, voter participation and, and, and getting, getting people through word of mouth at, as they were coming out of the polls to, to re encourage other people to, to vote. And it was a nonpartisan solution to increase voter participation. Um, so we'll make, be sure after this webinar to share, share some additional um, links. Um, um, and then uh, you, you you referenced offhand um, AI and the 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 Thank impact you. of AI. I think you were talking about you know, like uh, you were joking about the story tracker and and uh, monitoring for stories. But you know there is so much talk about Chat GPT right now. Is there any role for AI to help in sort of tracking and elevating solutions stories? Or what you know is there anything? in terms of the intersection of AI and, and solutions journalism that you want to flag? Yeah, there were, there's probably a huge amount that we don't know about yet, but one in particular, which is we would love to be able to teach a machine to identify solutions journalism, which is hard to do because it's not like you can look for certain words. In fact, a good solution story will probably not have the word solution in it. So it, it's, it's a very difficult issue and we've tried with various language models and, and haven't been successful. Maybe there's an AI way of doing that. 
if that's possible, then we can go to Google and say, hey, why don't you ask people if they'd like to prioritize solution stories in their news feeds? Or when they, when they do a query for, for news, um, you know, would you like to, um, you know, would you like to have solution stories among your top hits? Or here's a button and it'll show you some solution stories on this topic. Right now we can't do that because we need a machine to be able to, to see what solutions journalism is. Hmm. So if anybody uh, out there wants uh, to work on this problem, please tag me. Um, the, the tracker reminds me a little bit of some of the clearinghouses that both Mathematica and other organizations run for the federal government, where they, they have these almost like Wikipedia uh, or Consumer Reports websites that are for um, Results for America has a very good one, the econ Economic Mobility Catalog of you know, uh, interventions that have been implemented and evidence of their effectiveness. Um, but this this is a, another creative take on that that general concept. We have a a, a listener here, um, a viewer. I guess I'm so used to talking about listeners for the podcast, but a viewer who asks if you could distill good journalists into key skill sets, what would make your top three? Um, besides the usual, let's assume people know about the five W's, etc. I would say a tolerance for nuance and 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 not trying to cartoonify and and, you know, elevate the loudest voices on both sides and call it balance. Um, you know, television shows are so nuanced. Uh, we don't watch Leave it to Beaver anymore. We watch Breaking Bad. So, you know, why? in that way, television, scripted television, fictional television tells a truer story than, than a lot of journalism does. Because with journalism, we don't we're not interested in nuance. We're just interested in black and white, and that's bad. So I would say that's a really key skill set. Um, um, let's let's just, let me just stop with that. Okay. Uh, Michael asks: With the rapid introduction of massive data points daily, could data literacy programs support solutions journalism and help to provide more perspective? Oh, absolutely. Journalists need data literacy programs. And that is why NICAR, the, the uh, computer-assisted reporting classes that you took, are so valuable. Um, they, really, they really are, in fact, data journalism, not just computer journalism, because everything's computer journalism. But it's very important. But it's also important to be able for small news organizations to not have to do all that work themselves. If you, if you have published results that are in a database, tease out the, the takeaways um, in a way that's understandable. I mean, people do do this. That's kind of 101. But, um, but you know, you don't want to scare people away from reporting on your stuff because they can't understand it. You, you talked uh, at the beginning of, of, of this uh, conversation, you talked about your own solutions journalism origin story and uh, sort of beginning with an investigative piece. Um, I'm imagining it was a long form investigative piece. Um, is that the only format or venue in which solutions journalism can manifest or are there opportunities for, for other, you know, you know, daily, you know, quick daily stories? I mean, wh where, where do you see opportunity for more solution stories? Yeah, everywhere. I mean, if, if this were only long form stories, we would have died because there is no, 
you know, people don't do long form stories anymore. Um, yeah, you can do a, a 90 second local news TV, um, you know, spot with that solutions focused. It can be a part of every journalist's beat. Not every journalist. It, it works for people who cover issues, not breaking news. It's not a tool to cover breaking news. But if you cover criminal justice or health or, you know, recycling or a- any issue, you can use, make solutions journalism part of your beat. And these stories can be short. I know uh, in, in my previous life, I was always, when I was trying to figure out what's a good story, I would look for drama and conflict as as ingredients that would be interesting to the reader. Um, what is the, how do you incorporate some of those elements into a solution story where you're not just trying to be negative, you are trying to be constructive in some way? That's a great question. I mean, a solution story is a how done it. Um, people know from the headline, this place did something that other places didn't, or this group did something that other places didn't. How did they do that? And you want to keep reading, not because there's conflict necessarily, although you're all you're going to get people who say different things and you're going to watch people at work in different ways, but because you want to solve this mystery story of what was it that Brazil did? that other countries didn't. How were they able to do that? What was it that Houston did? That's that's the key to solutions journalism, what keeps people reading. Uh, we have a, a viewer who says, absolutely, women's issues, issues of marginalized communities, immigrants, these yeah. are some of the critical issues to address. Thank you for that that comment. Let me make Let me say something about that. It is so crucial to use solutions journalism with marginalized community coverage because the, the, the traditional way has been for a, a newspaper whose subscribers are mainly in the white suburbs to cover a community of color purely through the lens of crime. You're not covering a community for it. You're covering, you're writing about it for your white audience. And that is got to change. It is so toxic. It has set a narrative that is racially unjust and it underlines all other sorts of racial injustice. These are communities that never see themselves reflected or respected in the news. Same true with rural areas. <clears throat> you know, people go to Kentucky and they look for people with four teeth, journalists do. And that's totally unfair. And, and we have to cover marginalized communities in a different way, one that looks for what those communities are doing to solve their own problems. That, that um, actually brings me to another question that... Uh, uh, I've gotten, um, which is about your media diet. And it reminds me a little bit, I mean, one of the, one of the publications I, I subscribe to and read is Next City, which does seem to cover a lot of examples of what you're talking about, where communities are generating their own solutions um, and advancing equity in that way. But what, what are you reading? Um, is it, is it uh, I guess in particular, what solutions journalism sources are you reading? There's one I adore that was actually started by David Byrne. Yes, that David Byrne. And he writes for it, too. It's called Reasons to be Cheerful, which is this lovely, whimsical title that only could come from David Byrne. But they do excellent solutions journalism. Um, so I would I, I recommend that site. It's a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, and you run into David Byrne at times on the site, which is pretty cool. Um, on the other end... Almost everybody's doing solutions journalism these days, at least some of it. The New York Times does a lot of it and does and does it very well. They probably don't call it solutions journalism, but they do it. Um, you know, and any any 
any news organization that is part of the fear factory that is really there to create more polarization and profit from that is not interested in solutions journalism. Everybody else is um, and, and, and does a lot of it. But if you, you know, look in our story tracker, that's open to everybody. And you can see, you know, there's some news organizations that have hundreds of pieces in the tracker. Another question I've gotten is about uh, some of the other resources on your website. Um, the impact tracker, for example. I mean, Mathematica does a lot of evaluations where we are actually conducting impact evaluations. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact tracker uh, does or what it is? Yeah, we have also a, a playbook about how to, for newsrooms, how to track impact. Impact mm. is so difficult because there's so many different ways you can think about it. Um, you know, does it help a newsroom gain more audience? Does it help a newsroom gain more trust from the audience and more community involvement? Um, is there, um, you know, is there impact in the community in the sense of something that's being tried elsewhere is now being discussed here? Is there accountability where uh, something happens at the political level because of investigative slash solutions journalism? Um, is there a way that a newsroom makes revenue from solutions journalism, which is hugely important because we've lost more journalism jobs over the last 10 years than coal mining jobs. And people probably know that a quarter of all newspapers in the United States have folded. Um, so, I mean, journalism is severely endangered because of the death of advertising because of Google and Facebook. And, and so money is really, really important. So, I mean, there's many different ways of looking at impact. So the, our impact tracker just is collecting anecdotes. Um, it's, it's easy to track certain kinds of, of those impacts, like, um, you know, newsroom engagement and, and, and numbers. It's very hard to track what happens in the real world as a result of solutions journalism. And we depend on people to send that in. Hmm. Um. And then, and then the learning lab is is another uh, another resource you all have, right? So the learning lab is is for aspiring journalists, current journalists, anybody. How, how do you think about who's that? Interested in solutions journalism, and we have the one hundred and one course, which is now in fourteen languages. So if you only speak Hungarian, you're probably not listening to this, but you can do the learning lab in Hungarian, um, or uh, Swahili, or Arabic, or whatever. Um, we also have more advanced courses in health reporting, criminal justice reporting, environmental reporting, being an editor for solutions journalism, doing collaborative solutions journalism, as I mentioned, impact, broadcast, all sorts of different uh, uh, smaller slices of solutions journalism. But these are self-paced courses. They're, they're um, you know, you can do them at your leisure. We also have a 101 webinar every month that anybody can sign up to go to. It's one hour long. And then we have uh, more advanced uh, programs like a brainstorming session and workshops and stuff like that. So, Do you, do you ever work with people in communications? Because it, it does seem to me like there's some, there are sometimes um, going to be parallels where the, the folks who work in communications for a research outlet or for a university are, are thinking through some of the same questions about how to share the story of the solution, um, how to make it compelling, but also be accurate. Is that, have there been any partnerships or collaborations in the past with people in communications? No, 
And there's a very specific reason for that, JB, which is that when we started, we were really afraid that people would label solutions journalism as public relations. Yeah. And 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 people still do wrongly, but um, therefore we we did not want to work with publicists and communications people. We really wanted to stay on the newsroom side of it, working with the journalists themselves. Yeah, I, I can understand that. I yeah, it's I I would still encourage anyone who works in communications who's listening to this podcast to listen uh, or to to check out some of these online courses because I I have found that there are some um, some lessons that are applicable for for writing press releases or talking to journalists or um, just even just engaging with your own research colleagues about well how do we make the the findings uh, mo- the most interesting and relevant as possible. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, just trying to think if there's a, a, what what else should people um, check out? Are there any if people want to learn more about you or about the network's work? Where should they go? Well, our website's pretty complete, and you can you know look not just about our trainings, but all sorts of other things and our international work. Um, we have trainers all around the world, um, so it's not just U.S. focused. But um, you know, spend some time browsing the website. And the story tracker, which I think is much more interesting, actually, for the layperson. I used to, when I do newsroom trainings, I used to talk about the story tracker at the beginning. But then I realized that was a huge mistake because people would just sit there and play with it for the next hour. It totally tuned me out. Um, but it's, it's really addictive and a great way to start your day if you're tired of the negative headlines. Yeah, I, I mean, um, you had, you'd mentioned sort of... Um, people t- tuning out. I remember there was a really good op-ed. I think it was last year in the Washington Post by a journalist. Amanda Ripley. R- was it Amanda Ripley? Okay, yes, where she confesses to re- like consuming less news than she ever has before and then talking about how that that uh, you know solutions journalism can be an answer to that fatigue. But I, I would encourage folks to check out that op-ed because it resonated with me. I used to be somebody who would um, – uh, uh, you know, listen to NPR's Up First podcast every morning, and 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 then some other things as well. Um, but midway through the pandemic, I found it was just really it's difficult too. To, it's just too hard. Yeah. Um, and then another question. I, I guess this is actually this is. I, I was thinking of this is similar to the one I asked, but I think it's slightly to Tina in academia. We do lots of work uh, in the lab, and our work remains in paper. Uh, sir, I, I think I think what she's saying is uh, like in a, a peer-reviewed paper, perhaps. How 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 can evidence journalism or solutions journalism and uh, or how can these reporters who practice evidence-based journalism um, how can they co- collaborate with academics? So you know, if you're a researcher, take out the, that 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 uh, that that um, bothersome comms professional who's pitching you. But if it's just a researcher who wants to talk to you about their work, how can they connect with you or work with you? That's a good question. And I think I would argue with what you just said about taking the comms professional out of it because they know more about how to pitch to journalists. The problem with being a researcher is that you're an expert. And that means almost by definition, you do not know how to talk to non-experts. But a comms professional does. And, and some of them are terrible, but a lot of them are pretty good. Um, so I would say don't throw those people aside and just make sure that, that you're pitching 
research that you can explain and is relevant. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to have a super strong con conclusion, but it has to be strong enough so that, a so that, you know, the reporter and the editor would say, this is something we need to report on. Okay, well, I, I'm mindful of time. It's 2.59. We've gotten some great questions today. I really appreciate everyone joining us. And Tina, I really appreciate you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for giving your time to us. Thanks to our guest, Tina Rosenberg. You can learn more about the Solutions Journalism Network at solutionsjournalism.org. And thanks for listening to another episode of On the Evidence, the Mathematica podcast. If you're new to the show, consider subscribing. We're on all the major podcasting platforms. You can learn more about us at mathematica.org slash on the evidence. Oh.